Hi everyone, welcome back to Edinburgh Film Podcast episode 27. In this episode I am joined by Richard Moe, the director of French Film Festival and Cinephile, the distribution company based in Edinburgh. We discuss the process of distribution from start to finish, the history of Cinephile and witnessing the transition from analogue to digital. Please bear in mind this episode was recorded in March before we had any idea of what the future was going to bring, so just know that some of the events or plans we mentioned were cancelled or may not go ahead. But for now, without any further ado, this is Richard Moe. Welcome to Edinburgh Film Podcast. Thank um, you very much. My name is uh, Katabek and we are joined by you today. So can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Indeed. So my name is Richard Moe and I'm the director of the French Film Festival. I'm also a co-founder of that festival, which has been going for 28 years now, working up to the 28th edition in November. I was also a co-founder and a director of the Italian Film Festival, which is still ongoing, but uh, I'm not associated with it anymore. Um, I'm also a director of a distribution company based in Edinburgh, but distributing films, uh, challenging films, interesting films throughout the UK and Ireland. And that company is called Cinefile. Uh, there are two distribution companies actually in Scotland. Uh, one is Cinefile, the other is a much larger concern, but... Uh, good colleagues of ours, called Park Circus in Glasgow. They're based in Park Circus, hence the name. But they're also a company that has bought a lot of film catalogues. So they do a lot of film restorations and revivals, and they have catalogues from people like Studio Canal. They have a real treasure trove of films that they have access to. So we do work with them on our festival. And uh, as I said, there, there are these two companies in Scotland that distribute films, in the case of Park Circus, throughout the world, in our case, Cinefile, uh, throughout the UK and Ireland. So that gives you a little flavour. I also work as a journalist because my uh, roots are in journalism, so I still write a lot about film and I do a lot of festivals such as Cannes and uh, Venice and Toronto and Calavari and Berlin and all sorts of exciting, exotic places where I just go and sit in the dark for weeks on end and watch films. But it's a very good way of seeing a lot of films with an audience, which is also a good thing rather than just watching them streamed online. And uh, that helps us to make our choices, not just for the festival, but also for buying films for distribution. What I would like to do for this specific episode uh, is to kind of dive deep into the distribution part of what you do. Because I find that completely fascinating. And I think our students, especially students who are doing exhibition and uh, curation, <laughs> that's right, uh, they're going to find it quite interesting. And so, and also it's something that we don't really get taught necessarily. Mm. Uh, I mean, I've studied films for a film for four years and I've never, we kind of, distribution is just a word for us really. It doesn't, we don't really know what it involves. Mm. And so uh, it'd be great to talk about that specifically. And so in terms of Cinefile specifically, when was that set up and how did that idea come about? Yeah, it is quite interesting distribution, but it is the kind of Cinderella maybe of the <laughs> film business because stars and festivals are really glamorous and interesting, but distribution is kind of the nuts and bolts of, yeah. of, of film. Uh, but it is important because it makes sure that films are seen in cinemas and on other platforms as well now. Um, so Cinefile, just to answer your specific question, was set up, I think, about uh, 15 years ago now. Time flies when you're having fun. Uh, but uh, the company is now well established. We have kind of 
he actually have a catalogue of films. And basically, the reason the, the company was started, and originally it started under the brand name of Cine France, because we thought we would only be distributing French films, because we had the French Film Festival. And we noted in the festival that there were still so many films that were great films by interesting directors, but it wasn't just... Nobody was buying them for UK and Irish audiences at that particular time. So we started as Cine France. We gradually expanded out to be Cinephile. So uh, we distribute films from all over the place. So uh, we have no, no boundaries in the kind of selections we make. We just make selections on the basis of thinking that there are films that will work with an audience. But we obviously, all of us in the company, have quite a strong influence on French cinema. So quite a lot of our titles are French indeed. And um, the company, as I say, can also kind of showcase our films in the festival. So if we see there's a particular film in the festival that works really well, we can then think about buying it for distribution. So that's, in a way, how, how it works. Um, we will distribute big-budget films, films that are destined for a big audience, um, but also films with more niche, niche appeal. So, for instance, we distributed recently for International Women's Day. A couple of years back, we bought the rights to a Swiss-German film called The Divine Order, which was about women getting the vote in Switzerland, which came rather late in the 70s, actually. It was a good, a good film, and it worked really well. I think it was an Oscar contender for Switzerland, and we had the director over to launch it, and it worked really, really well in the context of the women's movement and uh, votes for women. And uh, it still has a life. So every time it's International Women's Day, we get a whole raft of people wanting to play the film again. So that kind of works. And then most recently, we have been distributing a French film called A Faithful, Ma a Faithful Man, An Homme Fidèle, with Louis Garel, the son of Philippe Garel. And it's a kind of classic French romantic comedy in a way, a triangle situation with two girls and a guy. The guy is Louis Garel, who also directed it. Uh, but interestingly enough, the uh, co-writer of the film is a very uh, eminent uh, French film writer called uh, Jean-Claude Carrière. So he, he worked on the film with Louis Garel. Hence, it has a really, really good script. And the two women are Leticia Casta and Lily Rose Depp. So uh, it's quite a nice uh, combination. And that film worked really well. And at this very moment, we're looking at uh, what our next film may be. So we noted that in the Glasgow Film Festival that's just finished in February, that there was a film called The Translators, a French movie, uh, which some have compared to a kind of kni knives out <laughs> scenario. And that film just took off at the Glasgow Film Festival without any particular promotion. So we saw that an audience could pick up on that film just by the description in the brochure. And we're looking at potentially buying that as a next title, but we're also looking at a, a nice film that we had in the festival that was also in the Edinburgh International Festival last year called The Mystery of Henri Pic, which is uh, not so much a whodunit, but a who wrote it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's about a library in a Brittany town that uh, collects lost manuscripts, or unpublished manuscripts, I should say. And uh, it's, it's, a nice, it's a nice scenario, it's a nice conceit. So we may end up with both of those films for release uh, this year.
And so do you feel like because you are based in Edinburgh, was that a kind of a natural choice when you set up the company or you just happened to be in Edinburgh and so you thought, well, Edinburgh, it'll be? Yeah, I mean, that, physically, uh, most of the, the three directors of the company are based in Scotland. Uh, the th- two other directors are Lona Morrison, uh, who works with me on the French Film Festival, and the other director of the company is Alison Gardner, who is the head of uh, Glasgow Film Theatre and Glasgow Film. She's also a co-director of the Glasgow Film Festival, so she's steeped in the business. And uh, so the three of us are, all live in Edinburgh, so for convenience sake, that, that did help. But you're right, interestingly and traditionally, uh, the film business is centred in London, mm-hmm. and it's centred, well, it used to be almost on one particular street called Warder Street, and that's in Soho, and Soho is kind of used to be, and still is to a certain extent, full of little screening rooms where journalists and other people go and see previews of movies. So if you're looking for a film company, most of them are actually based in London. But nowadays, of course, communications are so easy, it really doesn't matter where you are. And uh, all other films, obviously, are just to get technical. They're all sent out digitally anyway. They're all beamed out to cinemas from a lab in London. In our case, it's a lab called Eclair, who we've been working with on our festival, which means that films can arrive in Orkney and Plymouth and Shetland and any small place now is very well equipped. So it's interesting that the UK, which used to be regarded as being a bit behind the times, I think in terms of infrastructure, we're quite well advanced now. I mean, we've we've done well to equip. We've done well for having organisations. Obviously, we have the British Film Institute. We have Screen Scotland, who are important supporters of us. And you have people like Film Hub Scotland, which also deal with kind of rural areas and community spaces and so on. So actually, you know, when you look around, we have quite a well-developed um, distribution and exhibition sector in Scotland and throughout the UK. So from that point of view, I'm quite kind of optimistic that people still you know, like that collective experience of going and seeing films with other people, even though potentially they can stream anything or capture anything they like at home. There is something very particular about seeing a film with other people, being able to talk about it with other people. And, uh, it, you know, that collective experience is still important. And interestingly, despite all the platforms that have come along, um, people still like to go and see film in cinema. And cinema attendances have actually gone up in the UK over the last year. Um, they're doing, we're doing very well up to this particular point. <laughs> Perhaps circumstances will mean that they go down a bit. Uh, but hopefully not. I mean, hopefully that's just a temporary blip and that uh, people will, you know, rediscover that. And I think the other thing, maybe just to underline, is that I think the range of film that you now have access to in British cinemas and on, on online as well uh, is very, very wide now. You know, it used to be just kind of the obvious things that got picked up for distribution, but now pick, people are picking up quite small films by unknown directors but with interesting subjects and that is often enough you know mm-hmm. um, and I think the cost base as well for distribution has become down and down and down 
with electronic distribution rather than having to pay huge transport costs to transport reels of film all over the place. You don't have to do that anymore. So that, that has helped. I think the only thing that's kind of holding back a bit on the expansion is trying to find a, <clears throat> enough screen space for your films because there's just so much going on <laughs> that you have to fight for a screen space for your film, particularly, I would underline, in London where traditionally films have to open in the UK, like they do in Paris or Berlin or wherever, um, films tend to open in kind of big, big cities, capital cities usually. And the reason for that is that uh, they films can get uh, media coverage, national media coverage, and most of the media, like it or not, is based in places like London. So that is part of the history of why films have to probably have a London screen. Mm -hmm. So before you release a film, you have to make sure that you have a London cinema on board, at least one, mm -hmm. if not several. And then the film can go out to what are called key regionals, which are cinemas around the country. Mm -hmm. And uh, that can be often be at the same time. And maybe just to say one other interesting thing about film distribution in the UK. There are a lot of companies like uh, Curzon, Curzon Artificial Eye, um, who release films across platforms at the same time. So you can see them in cinema, but you can also make the choice to download them and watch them at home. And for kind of interesting, challenging films, it has been discovered that that doesn't have a detrimental impact on the number of people that will go and see the, the film in cinemas. So you don't have to have that, that window in France, for instance, they're very particular about cinemas and preserving cinemas. And it's cinemas maybe in France are so much more part of the national culture than they are here, the act of cinema going. And they have a much longer window of opportunity for films to last in cinemas. It's, it's around about six months, it could be more. Uh, so films are not allowed to go on to any other kind of uh, platform uh, until the six months is up. So they have a big uh, window of opportunity to be seen in cinemas first. Mm. Hence the row over people like Netflix and Cannes and all that sort of stuff because Netflix don't want um, their films to be seen too much in cinemas because they feel that might impact on the audiences that they can have uh, when they're available to stream. And... Uh, in France, for instance, uh, Martin Scorsese's film, The, the Irishman, from this year, you were able to see that uh, in the UK in cinemas, and it lasted in cinemas quite a long time. But there was maybe only a couple of weeks before you could then go and watch it on Netflix. And in France, people were not able to see that film in cinemas at all because um, Netflix... because. Netflix wouldn't allow cinemas to have that long window of opportunity, like six months. Mm -hmm. They said there's no way you're going to have the film in cinemas for six months. So it's a kind of token gesture, but on the other hand, you have to admit and you have to give uh, acknowledgement where it's due that Netflix are uh, investing in film production. So a lot of directors like Scorsese would have never made The Irishman if it hadn't been for Netflix. Exactly. So there are kind of ups and downs to that mm -hmm. equation. And I'm sure over time, uh, things will kind of even out a bit. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of, 
you hinted at a few things or a few, I guess, stages of the process of actual distribution. But mm. if you were to kind of break it down to someone who, like me, who doesn't have any idea of, of mm. how things work, where do you, I mean, I mean, obviously you set up a company. Yes. Fairly straightforward, I, <laughs> I, I guess. But in terms of the actual distribution, so you mentioned things like a lab that you need, you mm. need screen space but you mm. also need to know what you're buying so kind of can you walk me through kind of in a, in, in yeah. a very simplistic way of what happens once you mm. buy a film and once that's because when we talked before mm. you didn't mention obviously you need to negotiate the price and da, da, da. so how does that happen right. until the point where i as a customer can go or, yeah yeah mm. exactly it's quite a long and complicated process and lots of people have uh, fingers in the pie uh so the distributor is actually quite low down the food chain. Um, mainly you're dealing with sales agents. So sales agents are people who uh, have films to sell. So basically their job is to sell films. They often will do this in festivals. So in Cannes there's a big market, in Berlin there's a big market, and the sales companies all have slates of films to sell. Um, the bigger ones are maybe Studio Canal, um, which is quite well known. And they, their job is to find distributors in what are called territories in different countries. Uh, so different countries will kind of have different deals. Um, and their job is to sell, find a distributor and match a distributor with a film. They then go on to do the deal. So that is how much money you think you can spend up front on the film, what kind of release it's going to get, um, how many copies you're going to release it on. They're obviously always looking um, to the bottom line to see how much money they might potentially get back. Um, so there are lots of different people. The producer has the producer who has helped to put the budget together for a film. That's what producers do. Uh, but they're very, very crucial. Sometimes a producer and a, and a sales company and a distributor will have worked together before, so there may be natural um, bedfellows in the enterprise, but some of them won't have. So basically the producer also will want to see his cut of it, and the, some producers are very hands-on and they want to know exactly who is distributing the film, and if that particular distributor is not offering enough money, the producer will say... Uh, right, we. I don't want to go with that. That's going to under devalue, devalue the film. So let's wait for something better. Or in some cases, I'm not interested in having the film shown at that price mm -hmm. in a particular country. We'll just let it drop. So very often, a, a producer will not particularly care. You'd think that as a creative person, he would actually want to have the film shown, even if it's slightly below the his expectations in terms mm -hmm. of price. But very often producers are very hard-nosed and won't allow a film to be bought for less than they think is the market value of that particular film. And so, is that, is that mm. specific to cinemas or is that specific to digi digital platforms as well? Yes, because when you buy the rights to a film, you're usually normally buying all rights. Mm -hmm. So you're buying for digital platforms, you're buying it. TV rights, you're buying DVD rights. Mm -hmm. So that's all bought as part of the package. Sometimes to lower the price, you might drop one of those particular items. So you might say, well, okay, we'll, we'll never get this film shown on TV anyway, so let's just drop that bit of it. 
maybe to bring the price down. So basically that is kind of how um, you go along the line to get to get to buy a film. It's and then the the recoupment from the box office receipts. So it doesn't all come to the distributor. It would be wonderful if it did, but bits of it have to go back, obviously, to uh, the producer, to the sales agent, and there's a kind of formula for that specific percentages. Um, so you know, four or five years down the line, you can still be paying money back to the sales agent and back to the producer as as recoupment for as the film makes its progress from cinema to um, streaming to DVD to potentially television. Mm -hmm. So it's it's kind of quite a quite a long process, and um, it's it can be. It can be quite uh, challenging, you know, in terms of the money. Um, some cinemas in the UK, we have uh, um, cinema chains called Picture House is one. Picture House is part of Cineworld, actually, but they keep the two identities very distinct. Uh, Picture House do distribute films in the UK, but not all that many, but they will buy films. So the great thing for a company like that is that they not only have distribution, but they also have the cinemas. Mm -hmm. Whereas a company like Cinefilm, unfortunately, we don't have any cinemas. Therefore, we have to fight to get the film into cinemas. Curzon Artificial Eye are a company that go way, way back. They used to be small and independent in the, I don't know, 70s. Um, they go back quite a long way. And they uh, also have cinemas, which they had historically. You know, they, when they opened, I think the company had cinemas already. So there are lots of Curzon cinemas in, in London in particular. And because uh, ticket prices are more expensive in London, a distributor can make more, a lot of money in London as opposed to making money in other places which have more civilised ticket prices, more affordable ticket prices. So, so again, Curzon Artificial Eye, they buy, they're probably one of the biggest kind of art house distributors in the UK, and they obviously um, have, have cinemas, so they can always get their films and give their films the prime time slots in cinemas around the country, and that helps enormously. And they, they certainly do buy an awful lot of films. But you can look at the life of a film like, uh, just to bring one recent example to the fore, uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, uh, which was screened in Cannes Film Festival last year. It's only now just coming out on screens in the UK, which indicates that there is a logjam of titles waiting to be seen in UK cinemas. So they take, often take their time. Uh, so that's one that Artificial Eye acquired. Uh, there's a film called The Deerskin uh, with Jean Dujardin, which was acquired last can by Picture House, and that's still not been released yet. It's about to be, I think. Mm -hmm. So it's often taking a year from mm -hmm. the time they had first seen a film to uh, the film actually being seen and available to be seen by the public. And who then mm. decides, just from what you're talking, I just wonder, so who then decides when to... Mm. actually put the film in the cinema because I know mm. that, that obviously you have scheduled releases Christmas yeah. is a very, yeah. very popular time mm. is that a negotiation between the distributor and the sort of salesperson and the producer or is it who sets that? Right, that's mainly a job for the distributor to decide which is the best window mm -hmm. of opportunity that will maximise the success of the film 
and the distributor can look at the calendar. There's a calendar, as you noted, of releases throughout the year. The big tentpole releases are already dated. James Bond's already been delayed uh, until the autumn, till November. Um, so, so they're very uh, lucrative spots. So it's actually finding the right spot for your particular film. So the distributor has that gift. He can decide, really, um, when they want to release the film. So we have a French-Chinese film called uh, The Lady in the Portrait, not to be confused with Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And uh, it's, it's a big, uh, big expensive epic uh, production. And we uh, saw that April, April the 3rd uh, was going to be a good time because there was only, other one, only, uh, only one other film that was being released at the time, which was the James Bond film. And we, we obviously came in as an alternative uh, choice for cinemas. And uh, we'd been told that cinemas were actually really desperate to find uh, an art house film to screen at that particular time because art house cinemas generally wouldn't screen the James Bond film. So, of course, the James Bond film has now moved, uh, but we're still stuck with our April the 3rd date. Uh, but the film is going to be seen in Edinburgh, Glasgow, uh, Manchester, London and other places uh, still to confirm. So basically we kept that slot. So you can look around the calendar and choose your slots. So very often the end of August is a good slot before the autumn. September, November, October, the run-up to the Oscars is a big, big time in all countries and all cinemas, actually, for releasing films, you know. So um, we've often released a film at the end of August, which is just slightly less busy, but people are still not sitting on the beach and they're still interested and maybe going to see films. I think in France they also discovered that, obviously, all the French go on holiday in July and August as a one. And, uh, you know, the French... uh, cinema had difficulties and then they discovered that actually if they programmed the right film you know a family film uh, and had a nice release pattern so it would be screening in resort towns mm-hmm. beach towns mm-hmm. uh, they could actually do quite well in july and august so um that that's another kind of aspect of it mm-hmm. and of course the one big aspect that probably nobody really mentions or predicts is, is the weather you know i mean you can have just dreadful, dreadful weather and just nobody is going out. You can either have a heat wave when everybody wants to go and uh, sit outside and not even come into the cool of a cinema, although eventually if the heat wave goes on too long, (laughs) unlikely in the UK, I know, (laughs) but if it does, then people maybe think, oh, I'd like to get in out of the heat and into a nice cool cinema. But obviously you can also have dreadful weather, you can have strikes, you can have viruses, you can have all kinds of other things that impact that are not in your control at all. But if you miss your window mm-hmm. of opportunity and you happen, because of other circumstances, you kind of have lost it, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of factors that uh, you can do everything on paper and you think you've got it absolutely right, and then something comes along and takes the carpet away from underneath your feet. Mm. And have you noticed any difference in the kind of industry as a whole, especially mm. in the kind of, I guess, late 90s and the transition from analog and digital? Has How has that impacted industry at the time? And do you feel like it's balanced out now? Is it kind of calmed down and everyone's 
kind of on it and with it, the fact that we have digital copies and yeah. especially mm. the rise of, you mentioned Netflix, Amazon Prime, we have a bunch of others. And we talked about um, this before, we have this like huge fragmentation of the market. Mm. And so how has that impacted your work? Well, it is interesting just to reflect on how quick this revolution happened. I mean, you know, I can still remember celluloid being hauled around into cinemas and round festivals and getting on trains with huge packages of, of film just so that they could get there on time that you wouldn't have to rely on a transporter mm-hmm. so all of that has really revolutionized things and cinemas now are so well equipped in terms of their equipment in terms of being able to have live performances from national theater or the royal opera all of these things are helping to make cinema buildings uh, much more cost-effective places, you know, and and giving a range. I think that's what has happened is that the kind of range of films that are on offer is so varied now. You used to have to play a film for maybe seven days, and it was only the one film, you know, and it played every performance for seven days. Whereas now, you know, Filmhouse could have about maybe five, six, seven, eight films just in one over the course of one day, mm-hmm. which provides a huge amount of choice for the audience and it also allows programmers to be much more inventive so there is a place for the one-off screening of a particular classic that you maybe don't want to play for a whole week but it's quite good to have it for two or three screenings so that has revolutionized things i mean getting films up you know, I mentioned Orkney and Shetland. Getting films up into areas like that is mm-hmm. now so easy at the touch of a button. Mm-hmm. And as a result, you have very vibrant arts centres and cultural centres in quite remote places, you know, which have a huge hinterland of a community mm-hmm. who really want to see things. So I think it's it's happened quite quickly and uh, it's it's been... Well, from my point of view, I think it's been brilliant. I know there are purists out there who still think, and I probably agree with them, that there is a place for celluloid, and it's great that cinemas like Glasgow Film Theatre and Filmhouse have kept projectors so they can show celluloid still. And I hope that is something that will be preserved, you know. And obviously I know Quentin Tarantino is very keen on occasionally seeing his films on to celluloid as well. So I think it does make a difference, but I don't know. I I know that there's a continuing debate about, you know, what's the best quality, the best depth of field and all the rest of it, but I'm not sure that I miss all these scratches and jumps and bumps and crackling sound mm-hmm. from a worn print of a film, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Plus, you have all this wonderful work that is going on to restore classic films and you have wonderful 4k restorations of this Mm. that and the next thing i mean you know so this has given a whole new spin to the archives actually Mm -hmm. uh, which have suddenly rediscovered the treasures that existed that were gradually deteriorating in cellars you know uh, with the very fragile thing of celluloid although Mm. digital also has issues i think but at least they have a master copy that they can then work on again Um, i think i think it's all been really really healthy it's just made things just so much more uh achievable you know Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i i wonder if there's a 
because obviously you have witnessed the transition mm. and so I wonder if for you it's more like well if you can see something in 4k that's beautifully restored without any cracks mm. and all that mm. why wouldn't you do that yeah. but I guess you have so many people who are very sentimental about it and I wonder if people who are younger who haven't been mm. through that tra transition if they're kind of you know for them it's such a fantastic feeling of witnessing the real film you know where you kind of you you can see how physical it really is mm. and so i wonder if there's you know there's that sentiment for some people where i'm sure there is but they can overdose on something like cinema paradiso maybe and that will give them the full <laughs> flavor over and over again which by the way i do love as a film um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right. I mean, it, it's it's something we don't want to lose sight of because it is, in a way, real cinema. It's like real beer, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So we shouldn't ever forget that, and that's where it all came from. Mm -hmm. And I think having places, you know, having cinemas where you can see, as people did with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood from Tarantino, you were able to see it on film mm -hmm. if you chose. And having that choice, I think, is is a good thing. Yeah, I, I remember when it, we actually went to see it on on um, film, um, and that was in film. I was, and I really appreciated the fact that they did give you the option. So yeah. it's really up to you to choose. And mm. the fact that they can give you the option, yes. you know, mm. I think that's brilliant. So in terms of what um, is coming up for you and what you do, because I know that we spoke mm. about the film uh, French Film Festival, but also you do screenings in Summerhall because you are based in Summerhall. Yeah, we are. Can yeah. you talk about that for a little while? <laughs> Well, we're based in the Tech Cube, which is a very lively community, actually, in Summer Hall. Uh, so there are production companies in there. There are all kinds of different people in there. Uh, so uh, we decided to start uh, using their red theatre space as a screening room, and that's kind of taken off, and there's more screenings happening there now than ever. And some of them are from us, and some of them are from other people. So it's... it's uh, gained a reputation as being uh, a, an alternative screen in Edinburgh, which is screening different things than you might find at Filmhouse or Cameo or other cinemas in town. And I think that's all to the good. Screen Scotland, to give them their due, are looking at an application to upgrade the technical facilities at Summer Hall. And probably that will come through and that will be, uh, again, a step forward for, uh, for that particular screen space. I think it's interesting that, uh, you know, community cinemas are very, very lively these days, you know, um, in even small communities, because it's so much easier to get film and have access to film and to get the equipment. Um, you're, you're finding all kinds of interesting things, uh, you know, springing up. Uh, the, the people in London who do their amazing event cinema and specific places like Lawrence of Arabia in a very specific building you know they do site specific screenings there's outdoor screenings you know in London in summer in Somerset House mm. um, there are amazing things that you can now do with the flexibility that cinema has now acquired um, so we yeah, we're based there and we do screenings there try and do screenings there through the year and then we also trail stuff that we've got coming up at the French Film Festival. And uh, that festival, as I say, takes place November, December. So we're beginning to put that program together. We're starting to look, put the kind of uh, the basics together. So we're looking at our short film program. We're looking at our mobile film festival program, which is films uh, shot on tablets or iPhones or mobile phones. 
and uh, we're getting that all together. We're getting our learning program together, which is our films destined for schools, which uh, we run morning screenings uh, in various cinemas around the country, uh, specifically geared at different age groups. So you can see that's very cynical if you like, and it is, but but um, it, you're building the audiences of tomorrow. So uh, you're opening, uh, you know, the eyes of pupils to films with subtitles that they needn't be scared about, and you know, it breaking down prejudices and all the rest of it, and also, I think uh, you know, opening up uh, their eyes to to other cultures, to French or Belgian or Quebec or whatever the film comes from. Um, and we prepare packs for them to take back into the classroom as well. So, uh, yeah, the festival's coming together. Uh, we're still hopeful that the Cannes Film Festival is going to take place, but we're not entirely sure. That's one of our main kind of places to go to to see films for this year's festival. It's actually too late for the Edinburgh Film Festival in June. Uh, but they... I think, have been to the Berlin Festival in February. So that's, again, another of the places that they can catch up with films. Um, I suppose the other good thing about it is that even if you miss films and festivals, you can always catch up with them on screening links. So uh, what used to be given to you on DVD, uh, you now can download and you can you know, have five viewings of a particular title. So as programmers, that's made life a lot easier for us. And it's the same for all festivals. The, the festival um, uh, person in a particular sales company will be able to give you uh, a link to a particular title that you might be interested in for the festival. So instead of worrying about missing it or missing a screening or whatever, you can watch it on your laptop. Not on your phone, <laughs> but you know it's it's not ideal. But you know it just it gives you the opportunity to be able to catch up with stuff. So I think if a film makes an impression while you're watching it on your laptop, then it must be worth programming <laughs> in your festival. <laughs> and is there anything at all you'd like to add so that we include it in the podcast? Or? Well, we're obviously always interested in talking to people who might want to come and work with us on a voluntary basis. And uh, we may even have some paid positions, as we did last year, thanks to the uh, subsidy of Screen Scotland. Um, it's, it's interesting because we can offer traineeships to people who have got an interest in cinema and really want to come to grips with some of the things we've been talking about, the nitty-gritty of distribution, the nitty-gritty, the nuts and bolts of putting a festival together. And, you know, as you, you alluded to, it looks all wonderful and great and glamorous from the outside, but actually when you're in the nitty-gritty of it, it's kind of different, but equally exciting. Mm -hmm. So uh, just to say, you know, please do get in touch with us if you're interested in that. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Richard. It was so amazing Good. talking to you. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> um, and we look forward to hopefully working with you um, Absolutely. in the future. Yeah, that would so. be really good. Look forward to that. That's great. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you.